Welcome to Tall Tales, a new podcast series presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin in partnership with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. And I'm here today in this beautiful building. Uh, the Tall Tales podcast series is perfect for everyone who loves children's books. I'm Shane Hegarty. I'm the author of Boot and Dartmouth. And today I'll be delving into Tall Tales, Chapter 3, Poems and Books to Save the World with, with our guest, uh, Chris Riddell. Hello, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Shane. I, I'm very taken. Sometimes acronyms can be wonderful, can't they? And I think yeah. Molly is just such a great acronym. It is, isn't it? Perfect the, for, for a, a Museum of Literature in Dublin. I don't think there could be a... Unless there was some version of yes, 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 which you could kind of put together. And uh, you know, that might be like the only... You're trying too hard. Uh, I am. Molly is perfect. <laughs> So, uh, so Chris, for those who who uh, need uh, any kind of introduction to you, um, you are, and and I am quoting the uh, International Literature Festival Dublin itself in that you are uh, you're one of the most hardworking and inspirational illustrators and writers around. Um, now, it says that this autumn sees publication of three books by you: Poems to Save the World with Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, which you've illustrated uh, a new edition of that and the paperback of the Cloud Horse Chronicles, the, the first book, The Guardians of Magic. But also, uh, I believe there's actually six books that you're involved with that are being published this autumn. Is that right? I'm, I'm afraid so. Um, I'm not proud of myself. It's just been <laughs> one of these things that have happened. Um, and in fact, just this morning, Shane, I got another book through that I'd just accidentally done. Um, uh, it's with a wonderful poet called Paul Cookson. And um, each, uh, each day from last November, um, I've been trying to keep myself sane. Um, we had a bit of a catastrophe last November when um, the nation, um, my nation, decided to uh, elect um, a sort of rather overblown public schoolboy um, and Oxford debater, they 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 elected him to uh, lead us to the a new golden age, apparently. And um, to stop myself shouting at the radio from then on, what I did is I kept a sketchbook beside the radio, and as I listened to the morning news, um, I would just do a drawing. I decided to do a drawing every day. Uh, I'm calling calling it my five years sketchbook. And uh, so each morning I just draw something. Um, to do with 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 what's going on. So uh, this morning, Shane, I've actually drawn the dark at the end of the tunnel, which is an um, enormous Lord of the Rings style troll, uh, just polishing his uh, his bludgeon, his his no deal um, sort of club, um, and it just makes me feel better. You know, instead of getting really sort of frustrated, I just do a little drawing, then I post it on social media. And Paul is a poet, and he saw me doing this, and he started to write poems um, in in conjunction. And so we had this funny sort of you know uh, double act going on. And then he decided to publish it. A little uh, publisher in in the um, north of England, in Manchester, has put them together, um, and uh, and it, it turned it into this this lovely book. Um, Great. Which... And you're looking. I know that we're we're recording this as audio, but I can see. Uh, you at the moment, and you were getting, you were reaching for that book there, and it's called it "Fighting Fighting Talk." Fighting Talk by by Paul, and I actually didn't use the illustrations I've been doing, but I, I actually sort of did some illustrations of, um, uh, you know, to go in this book, especially, and uh, 
I'm just sort of thumbing through the pages now because there's a lo- rather lovely one I'll just share with you, um, Shane. Um, yeah. This is Covidiot uh, by Paul Cookson from his book Fighting Talk. Um, and it goes, this ego so mad and demented, these phrases and terms you've invented, the only new words we wish we had heard is Donald, you're unprecedented. <laughs> I have a little drawing of, of, of Donald in his dustbin of history with his very, very strong tie. So yes, I've been, I've been getting up to all sorts during lockdown. And, and for me, I mean, I, I work at the bottom of my garden um, in, in, in Brighton. Um, I, uh, my, my commute to work is, is very sort of um, good in these, these times because I walk down my garden path um, and uh, the only uh, disruption to my daily commute is uh, a pheasant that has suddenly turned up in my, my back garden. And I'm in the middle of town, so I don't know. It, it's a refugee from some sort of shooting party somewhere in yeah. the countryside, and it's taken up residence in, in, my, in my garden. It's got no tail feathers. It looks at me so as if I'm the intruder as I walk past. And pluck, I feed it grain from now and again. And there are two very hungry foxes that are stalking it. So we've got this weird standoff going on in the garden, these, these urban foxes. I don't think they quite know what a pheasant is, but they, they, they're obviously sort of uh, after it. And have you um, named the pheasant? Have you, have you kind of uh, gone yes, that I far? Have. I, I have gone that far. Um, I, call, I call him Phil. <laughs> um, and, and more than that, Shane, I actually wrote a poem all, all about the, the, the pheasant, um, as yet unpublished, but, but you know, I've, I've been sort of driven to poetry um, to actually... Now, all this is sort of rather inadvertent. I, I don't think no. I to... Uh, inadvertent is good. I mean, I think anybody who accidentally publishes a book uh, is, is definitely, um, you know, allowed inadvertent moments of poetry as well. Um, the other the other thing that happens, Shane, is I, I, I draw, write these things down on bits of paper, and then and then sort of completely lose them. Um, but fortunately, I I have it to hand. This this poem is called Paradise. Paradise, a walled enclosure of Persian kings. The pheasant, tail feathers missing, appeared in the back garden, wide eyed in its injured robes, like an outraged potentate fleeing a palace revolution. He stepped delicately as a ballet dancer down the garden path as we watched from the kitchen window. Stalked by a dusty urban fox, eyed by predatory town cats, flapped at by the impertinent pigeons, far from the countryside shoots, the pheasant pecked at the seed beneath the bird feeder, stranded in paradise. Each morning, we checked from the window to see if he's still there. So my pheasant report, Shane, is he hasn't made an appearance today, so I'm a little Ooh. bit worried. A little bit worried. We'll, we'll have to see. Well, we'll be keeping a vigil for Phil. Uh, yes. Hash, hashtag vigil for Phil. <laughs> I, think so. I, I like it, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and before, because we're going to talk about poetry, obviously today, because of this really beautiful uh, book, Poems to Save the World With, which you've uh, chosen poems uh, for and and have illustrated. Um, before we get to that, because again, there is so much 
we, we won't possibly be able to talk about everything that you've done. I mean, you've, you've won so many prizes for uh, for your work. Uh, you've written the great series, uh, the likes of the Autoline books, the Goth Girl books. Um, you've uh, you were children's laureate in the UK from 2015 uh, to 2017. You have an OBE. Um, <laughs> but the one thing, and uh, the one thing that I see, and I. I I'm lucky enough to travel the UK occasionally talking about my books and everywhere I go, I meet you uh, because there I have, I think I'm right in saying I've been in toilets that have been illustrated by you in bookshops. That would be have, a thought. Yes. yes, I think it's Mr. B's. Would that be right? That's in Bath? A wonderful uh, I have uh, just before lockdown, I was in Seven Stories in Newcastle where you know, you, you, your work is on the walls. I, I talked to a bookseller recently and I hope you don't mind this 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 line. She said, um, drawings fall from you like dandruff falls from the rest of us, which and I and I, I know exactly what she means. You seem to have. I genuinely mean this. It's almost sort of a supernatural gift to be able to draw what you what you what you draw with such detail. And everywhere I go, it's different. It's individual to the place that we're in. It reflects the place that we're in. How what what when you when you draw, what is happening inside your brain that just makes these characters and worlds come? to life with what to me as somebody who cannot draw at all and we will come to that in a little while what with such apparent ease that's an interesting one shane i i I like the way this is going because it feels wonderfully therapeutic you know (laughs) like we we might make some progress on on my uh, (laughs) my sort of condition um i think I think for me, drawing has always been a, 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 an escape. Um, uh, I like to tell um, this story, and I've told it many times o- over the years, about my sort of the first time I, I really connected with drawing as a way of, of sort of, you know, losing myself in, you know, uh, in my imagination as opposed to having to sort of, uh, you know, go with the moment. And it was in church. I guess my father was a, a, a vicar and I, I used to sort of have to go to church every Sunday as a very small child. And I found it really dull. You know, I'm just one, you know, I suppose kids often, you know, told to sit still, you know, they get a bit fidgety, told not to make a noise. They have an urge to sort of, you know, make a yeah. make a racket. And I was no different. And, and to keep me quiet, my mum used to give me a paper and pen. Um, and I was allowed, during my dad's sermons, if I paid attention during the rest of the service, when my dad went up to the pulpit to, to li- deliver, you know, his sermon, I, I was allowed to draw. And that kept me quiet. That kept me well behaved. And so I, I would just lose myself in drawing. My, my dad would be preaching about sort of, you know, brotherly love and peace on earth. And I'd, I'd be drawing knights with their heads being cut off and castles on fire <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And um, there was a, um, uh, one of the parishioners, uh, Mrs. Stock, and she used to sit next to me um, at, in, in church. And she had this enormous handbag. And when the, the sermon started, I'd get my paper and pen out and start to draw um and she would reach into her handbag and take out this little leather purse that she kept in there and she'd unzip it and this purse was full of wine gums and she would feed me wine gums just quietly you know during during the sermon and so i had this dual pleasure of of sort of losing myself in my imagination and having someone feed me wine gums and i remember (laughs) thinking that's what i want to do for a living you know so, uh, so I think I've never stopped that that sense of you know drawing as an escape. Um, I was always um, you know as as a young child, I was rather I found reading 
rather difficult. Um, and so I, used to, I, I struggled, I think. I wasn't one of these kids who suddenly sort of, you know, I, I drew from as soon as I can remember, but reading was, was difficult. And I had, um, uh, like many kids uh, of my generation, we, we had a reading scheme. Um, uh, it was sort of Peter and Jane, the Ladybird keywords reading scheme. Mm. You know, one of the things it's, I, I loved the illustrations. They were, they were beautiful, old fashioned, I think sort of oil paintings almost, but yeah. the very 1950s, there was Mummy and Peter and Jane, these these two sort of uh, lovely small children. Daddy didn't say, seem to be around much. It was mainly Mummy and Peter and Jane. And they used to do things like sort of, you know, go to the beach or, or sort of play in, in a sort of politically incorrect wigwam in the back garden, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, and these very simple word, uh, words to re- that were repeated through the stories, which give them a certain comic effect. Mm. But I, I didn't realise at the time, um, and uh, I struggled. And they were helpfully graded, so I, I went from sort of one A to one B to two uh, A to two B two C. Um, and I remember sort of stalling a bit at about two C. You know, when I I realised this wasn't coming easy. This was difficult, and as thrilling as Peter and Jane's tea with Mummy was, you know, it wasn't helping me get get you know through this. And I went into a neighbouring classroom and I found a, a, a book on on the table. And I looked at this book and I thought, wow, this is amazing. It was Peter and Jane twelve C, which was the very top of the whole pyramid, you know, and I looked at this fabled thing and I thought, and I opened it and I looked at it and it had long sentences in it. And I thought, wow, if I can just get to 12C, I'll have done this really difficult thing of learning to read. And then I need never read another book again. You know, I'll be done with it. I can get on with other things. And next to it was was a book um, called Agaton Sachs and the Jewel Thieves, as I later found out. But it had this brilliant illustration by Quentin Blake on the cover. And I just glanced at it and I thought, that's not Peter and Jane. You know, that looks like it's got a story in it. I wonder what that is. And I borrowed this book and and took it away and and just painfully decoded it over the the, the sort of, you know, it took me a week to sort of slowly get get this thing that this this book contained, which was the story. I I finally got that. I didn't understand a lot of the vocabulary. But it taught me that there was something very special in this book, and it was a story. And then the pictures helped me decode that. And so ever since then, I've had this lovely sort of sense of of the way that pictures provide a a way in, um, and and the way into something really magical, which is the story that the the books contain. And um, I've been sort of beguiled by that, I think, all all my life, and and certainly um, still am. And and for me, it's always the words. It's the words that come first. Um, I, I was um, I was just uh, attending a Zoom um, uh, meeting this this afternoon. The Foil Young Poets, um, which is a wonderful prize for for, for young people um, of school age who who are writing fantastic poetry, and I illustrate the, the poems that they do from uh, each year, and and it's a real pleasure um, because they're such fantastic words that they provide inspiration. And I think illustrating poetry for me is exactly that. It's a way of going in and decoding these these amazing uh, pieces of writing and, and and responding very immediately to them. But I feel the same way with with stories in general. You know, um, any book without pictures for me is is a missed opportunity. Do you think, because it's something I actually had an interview myself recently with, with uh, someone who I had, I kind of mentioned that I think I would love to see more adult books with 
illustrations. Mm. I'm, read, I'm reading a, um, a series at the moment called The Books of Babel by an American writer, Josiah Bancroft, which um, are all about a journey up the Tower of Babel, if it was a real thing around the turn of the 20th century with, um, uh, with all these ringdoms, cities inside them. It's, they're absolutely fantastic books, but they're so ripe for illustrations. They're so ripe. They, you know, I, I, if I think of the Edge Chronicles, I can imagine... Shane, how ripe, you see, because I chant <laughs> a book's ripeness by its design, you see. So so if I pick up a book and it's got one of these lovely, elegant margins, mm. uh, and it's got some of those lovely pages they have, just four chapters which are blank, I love that. I that <laughs> that's a very ripe book. Yeah. And so what I do is I, I sort of um, I take these books that I find um, and I draw on them. Yeah. Um, and I fill those margins. And uh, the last time I did this was with a um, with Stephen Fry's book Mythos, mm. which is a wonderful sort of you know retelling of, of Greek myths in in classic Stephen Fry style. You know, it's anecdotal and it's funny and it's wry, but it's also packed full of of information, which is rather wonderful. And it's almost a lexicon; it, it decodes you know words and phrases that we we uh, use um, and tells you where they come from, whilst telling these stories and full of margins and lovely blank pages and so I just took this book um, and started drawing in it and then I started posting it on on social media and before long you know Stephen Fry responded and said I, I see you're illustrating my book I said <laughs> yes you know and then we ran into each other at, uh, at, a, at a literary festival and I, I, I gave him the book you know he, he took it away with him uh, and he left me with his new book you see with with margins and I did the same again and so it's a it's a lovely way of sort of bringing something you know bringing my sort of reading sort of you know um, uh, my appreciation of something into yeah. the pages of a book that really isn't illustrated at all yeah. and would would you like to see more illustrated books for yeah. for adults yeah. oh yes yeah. absolutely as I say I think um yeah. I think a book without illustrations is, is a missed opportunity. Um, and I say that obviously as a paid up member of the illustrated <laughs> field. Uh, but, um, but I think books now, um, more than ever, now that we have digital uh, media and we, we have social media, um, books themselves are incredibly important objects. You know, it, it's a little bit like vinyl records. You know, vinyl has never been more beautiful. Um, and in fact, I actually illustrated my first lyric book for a vinyl um, record, you know, which was wonderful. Um, because records are big and you can have lots of artwork in them. Um, but, you know, the, the, the idea of actually illustrating um, a book is, is to sort of enhance it as, as an object, to, to make it covetable in a way that, you know, as wonderful and, and uh, you know, to be useful uh, reading on screen can be, um, and e-books and all this sort of stuff. Um, the way we really commune with, with stories we love is, is through the pages of books. And yeah, I'm funny because the line that 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 and again it may have been rhetorical. So, I'm, uh, uh, but the um, the person who was interviewing me said, "Well, we don't need them because we can we can read the books and we can use our imaginations." And and yet, yeah. children, as we know, have the greatest imaginations and an ability, I think, often to read a book and to understand a book in a way that sometimes even adults can't because they read and they reread and they understand. Hmm. characters and worlds and they live in those worlds in their minds 
I think it's a, a, a very valid criticism to actually say, you know, that, that we that that's what what sort of reading does for us. It creates worlds in our imagination. We 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 people, and we we sort of, and that's lovely, and I, I think it should. But as an illustrator, I think my job is is not to get in the way of that communion. It's it's to be and to accompany it. Um, so if I illustrate something, you know, that is overly specific in some senses, I, I'm getting in the way of that that sort of um, flow, um, what you want to do is, is, is to sort of provide a, a, a sort of feel for the book, uh, a page-turning quality to it. You want to almost emphasize the pacing and structure in a book, just the same way as a designer will lay out words on, on a page. I think an illustrator can actually provide a, a way through, sometimes a breathing space, sometimes a pause, sometimes a moment of great drama. You know, you can explode onto a page if you want to sort of have have that sense. Um, and I think so. You, if you're enhancing the reading experience as an illustrator, I think you're doing your 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 job in the right way. If you're sort of saying, "Look at me, look at me," and getting in the way, a bit like sort of you know, photo bombing, uh, you know, someone's <laughs> portrait, um, you're not doing it right. Yeah. So it's I think a, that's very specific to illustration. It sounds almost like that, uh, you know, they kind of say about soundtracks in films that if you notice the soundtrack, that sometimes, you know, it's too much, you know, that, that, that it's, you know, and, and I know that's that's a very kind of crude way of putting it sometimes because there are soundtracks that are important, but I understand the... Mm. No, I mean, quite frankly, you've hit on, on, on something as well here. Uh, it, if... You know, why in Harry Potter does the London Philharmonic, you know, all seem to have taken speed? You know, I mean, they, they never shut up, you know, and they're going nine, nine to the dozen all the time. And you just want them to be quiet, you know, sort of stop it now. And I think there is a sort of ten, tendency, I think, in, in, in a lot of sort of, uh, you know, cinematic sort of scores to, to sort of overdo it, you know, and not allow, you know, the, the viewer to sort of come to their own conclusions. You know, we you've got to weep now because we've got to have some clarinets sort of getting on in the background to really sort of up the ante. Um, and I think exactly the same with books. I think I think books should be beautiful, but they should also be discreet. I think they should, you know, have a, a, a everything from the texture of the paper to the 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 the, the smell of a book, uh, you know, um, through to the sort of visual look of it as well. The, the, the you know illustrations, if if they have such a thing, um, should all be about this unique and wonderful experience that we have as we hold these objects in our hands. And I'm I'm holding um, poems to save the world with in my hand at the moment, and it has, it is ex- everything that you say, including uh, including the lovely ribbon, uh, which I, I, I just love, a ribbon in a book to uh, to keep your your place and it's got but it has lovely embossed silver um and gold on the front and so tell tell me about it because i know this is the third collection of poems that you've put together um this is a particularly i think it's fair to say as you said i know you're living through the golden age as promised last november but it does it a particularly timely title and a particularly timely idea and does directly reference what we're going through at the moment. Shane, as, as you held that up, I know this is a podcast, but but the book glittered rather hmm. sort of pleasingly. So um, so I'm glad that that it, it feels sort of you know special in that sense. But I think it, it's it's a book I did during lockdown, um, and um, in in a sense, I think more than ever we are drawn to poetry in times of crisis and difficult uh, times, uh, uh, times of his political turmoil. Um, you know, times of of, of sort of um, personal 
tragedy and sorrow, but also uh, thanksgivings and, and and joyful moments, weddings, all sorts of things. You know, poetry I think can can sort of um, can lend um, a sort of empathy to 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 life in a way that. Um, uh, it's almost unique to to it. I mean, it, it, great novels do that. Wonderful music does that. Fantastic films do. But poetry, in a sense, is a is a quiet and telling medium that that, that speaks directly um, to us all. I think, and and is often overlooked in a way because it's not one of the more declamatory, you know, sort of noisy pursuits. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think. Um, I'm drawn to it in, in as I've said earlier, because um because I love the way words and pictures work together. And there's nothing better than poetry for for sort of, you know, um, uh, inspiring uh, the visual arts. Um and if I may, Shane, I mean we, we we've had a couple of poems. I I opened Please. Uh, poems to say the world with, funnily enough, at at a poem that seems to me to be to do all those things. And it's it's a poem uh, written by uh, a great friend and collaborator of mine, uh, the writer Neil Gaiman, who also writes some wonderful poetry. And uh, this is a, a poem that he wrote uh, for the UNHCR. Um, you know, we have over the past sort of few years seen far too many sort of terrible pictures of people sort of, uh, you know, in, in great sort of distress in, in boats, on beaches, in, in, in refugee camps. And this was a poem he wrote to raise money for, um, uh, to, to send uh, supply, much needed supplies to Syrian refugee camps, you know, where, you know, despite the sort of, you know, what one might think in winter can be incredibly cold and, and, and the Spartan place. And this is a poem called, What You Need to Be Warm. A baked potato of a winter's night to wrap your hands around or burn your mouth. A blanket knitted by your mother's cunning fingers or your grandmother's. A smile, a touch, trust as you walk in from the snow or return to it, the tips of your ears pricked pink and frozen. The tink, tink, tink of iron radiators waking in an old house. The surface from dreams, to surface from dreams in a bed, burrowed beneath blankets and comforters. The change of state from cold to warm is all that matters, and you think just one more minute, snuggled here, before you face the chill. Just one. Places we slept as children, they warm us in the memory. We travel to an inside from the outside, to the orange flames of the fireplace, or the wood burning in the stove. Breath ice on the inside of windows to be scratched off with a fingernail, melted with a whole hand. Frost on the ground that stays in the shadows, waiting for us. Wear a scarf, wear a coat, wear a sweater, wear socks, wear thick gloves. An infant as she sleeps between us. A tumble of dogs, a kindle of cats and kittens. Come inside. You're safe now. A kettle boiling at the stove. Your family or friends are there. They smile. Cocoa or chocolate, tea or coffee, soup or toddy. What you know you need. A heat exchange. They give it to you. You take the mug and start to thaw. While outside, for some of us, the journey began as we walked away from our grandparents' houses, away from the places we knew as children, 
changes of state and state and state, to stumble across a stony desert or to brave the deep waters while food and friends, home, a bed, even a blanket become just memories. Sometimes it only takes a stranger in a dark place to hold out a badly knitted scarf, to offer a kind word, to say we have the right to be here, to make us warm in the coldest season. You have the right to be here. It's a, it's um, it's obviously a very striking poem, um, and but also uh, your illustrations in it ex- explain because it's as I, as I look at it, the the illustrations go, they track that, I suppose, the kind of coziness and warmth to something quite different. So when you're illustrating a poem like Neil Gaiman's, how long does it take you to to understand what you want to do with it? How much? trial and error or are there times when you just feel that flow of the poem is something that you can go with in the illustrations i think flow is good um i i what i do is i tend to draw very instinctively so there won't be um lots and lots of attempts or drawings at it it'll be pretty much you know what i want to do is is, is go with my first response and so what i tend to do is is um and certainly with with um with the poems in this book i mean i got the designer to um uh, send me the, the the files. I printed them out on my printer, and then just drew directly on, onto the pages. So there's no roughs. There's no you know sort of it, it's me reading the poem and drawing as I read almost. Um, and and so things do jump out. You know sort of the 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 tink 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 of the radiator. You, you, we've all seen those old radiators, and that yeah. there's very warm about that so obviously that's a the, the, the handprint on on the frozen glass and you just think i want to draw that my favorite is the tumble of dogs mm. and yeah. i was just reading this poem with with no pictures that's something it, it's nice it's alliterative but you just skim past it but if you can go back and then go well a tumble of dogs i want to draw that it really then becomes a bit of a landmark in in the flow of the poem um, and and we've all experienced the warmth of a large and in my case a rather flatulent dog uh, <laughs> that's not going up to you on, on the sofa and and then sort of obviously there there are the sort of the images that we we've have from from newscasts the 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 terrible sort of you know images of, of refugees in boats i mean they become I- iconic and and i suppose the mood darkens and then the final image um on the, on the final page which i think is so sort of poignant that the, the notion of um you know words being conveyors of warmth you know the acceptance and and sort of kindness warming you from within you know and i think that's an incredible um, notion and and just drawing uh, i i sort of took this uh, my inspiration from a, a, a photograph of, of a syrian child you know mm-hmm wrapped up against against the cold uh not looking terribly happy and, and um but um but in a sense to try and convey you know that the, the human warmth that, that that acceptance brings which i think really is at the, at the heart of the poem and there is it's interesting um you talk about what a poem can bring and i, and I think that the title poems to save the world with it's <laughs> it's but it's it, it i think we've actually found certainly in ireland in the last few months that there is truth in that. So you have a section um, of the book called Everything is Going to Be OK. And the, the Derek Mahan, the Irish poet, who unfortunately has only passed away uh, in, in recent weeks, he has a poem called Everything is Going to Be OK, which became a, um, 
it, it became very important poem during the lockdown to the point where the RT main evening news, you know, the equivalent for, uh, for anybody who might be listening outside of Ireland, the equivalent of the BBC evening news, ended its broadcast with the poem. Everything is being uh, going to be OK, as read by Derek Mahan. And it, there was there was comfort and solace at a time when we really needed it. And, and Seamus Heaney was turned to a lot as well, as we tend to do. Um, in Ireland still in sort of times of crisis. So, you know, do you, it, it's, it, there is truth in that idea that a, a, a poem or poetry can maybe not save everything, but it can save those, those pieces of the world and can save those, uh, it can, can, can bring something very special at times when you really need it. And I think for me, you know, the, the, the title, I mean, it, it's in a sense saving our sanity, you know, which, which I think we're in the midst of all this. This is what we have. The, 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 we have our imaginations and we have our, our, our sense of self and empathy. And, and these are, are things that we need to nurture and, and save. You know, they, they will save us, our, our, our outlook. And in that sense, um, art, you know, the, in, in its broadest sense, the arts, I think, um, uh, they save us in, in, uh, in terms of our sort of well-being, you know, and, and I think that, that was what I wanted to convey. Um, I mean, the other sort of aspect, I think, that we're all going through, and I, I've, I've got to say, I mean, I, I was immensely excited when um, uh, I was sent a, uh, a diary, one of the, these, these diaries, um, and it had author's birthdays in it. And um, I turned to the page, um, uh, my birthday, and I realised I shared a birthday with Seamus Heaney. And that just made me so excited, you know, made me feel wonderful. Um, uh, His poem, Digging, is one of my absolute favourites, and I've included it in a a previous um, anthology I did. But again, you know, he is a great sort of poet to keep us sane, to keep us, you know, to to, to save our sanity, you know, turning to to, um, uh, Seamus Heaney writing about the landscape. It's a wonderful, you know, way to sort of, you know, ground us and make us feel sort of, you know, it might just be okay. You know, we will be okay. I had an extraordinary sort of moment um, in the midst of lockdown, and, and we speak, I suppose, as as the sort of, you know, this this second wave might well be crashing around us. Um, but it was in in mid May, and there was one of these enormous moons. Um, the, the, and it was a clear night. Uh, I was in my uh, uh, garden in Brighton. I just stepped out of the garden, left the back door open, stepped out and looked up and there was this enormous full moon. Everyone else had gone to bed. And I just sort of stood and looked up at the, the, this enormous moon. It felt especially sort of poignant because everything was quiet. There was a sort of odd trundle of, of trains, but you knew those trains were empty. There was no, no one on. Everyone was locked down. So it's a strange sense. And I sat down on, on, on a, my sort of garden bench and just looked up and looked at the moon. And then uh, my, uh, my son sort of stepped out and because and, he had seen the back door open and he thought, well, we've been burgled or something. This is weird. And, and there, there I was, you know. Uh, and um, the next morning, I, I was sort of moved to write a poem about it, which, which I've included in this, this anthology, and it's called uh, Lockdown. Yeah. I sat beneath the May moon last night and missed my life in silver and shadow with a distant trundling of trains going nowhere. There was a muted tranquility in sitting in the midnight garden, my lockdown house silent and sleeping behind me. Then you came down the stairs and, noticing the open door, stepped out to join me in the moonlight. Oh, it's you, Dad, you said, smiling, 
and suddenly I was falling away into empty darkness, mourning the life you were missing so bravely. And I think that sort of encapsulates how I feel mm. about a generation, a younger generation, who um, are experiencing this unprecedented um, pandemic. And they are doing it with such bravery, I think, um, and such sort of uh, uh, resources, you know, that they are attempting to find, you know, to, to save themselves in, in, in this extraordinary time. And, um, you know, I, I salute them in a way because they are going through something that many of us in, in, who are older, you know, have had the benefit of, of wonderful freshers weeks and fantastic experiences yeah. at university. And, you know, we've had schools we can go to and we've had, you know, and, and our children, I think, are going through a terrible time. And in a curious way, you know, we are being led, and uh, forgive me, Shane, for getting too political here, but I think we're, there are sort of, you know, certain political leaders who um, are looking everywhere to to sort of you know explain this and and, and sort of uh, you know uh, explain their sort of lack of foresight and and in some ways shameful incompetence, um, and so you know it's easy to point at kids and say you're not following the rules and then mm. to get in a car and drive to Barnard Castle you know yeah. it's, it's just you know uh, it's not good and and I think um, when this is over and it will be over there will be a generation who will remember this and will make things. A lot, lot better. I hope. I, I, I remain hopeful. It's, it's interesting because I, I had a similar feeling about Fre- it was Freshers' Week, where I thought I remembered that changed my life. Freshers' Week. I have a, you know, you have before and after moments. Everybody has a few of them through their life, and one of mine is the, the before Freshers' Week. You know, my, my uh, going to college and after and everything that followed since. But the other thing that I've seen, and I know you must be missing. Um, because we do, we should we should talk a little bit about obviously the children's books that you write, and not just that, but I've seen I was at Towers and Tales in Lismore a few years ago, and I saw you, which is one of the most wonderful um, venues uh, around a proper old Norman castle, and you mm. were sitting in one of the courtyards drawing as as you you are uh, want to do as we know, and. But people would come over and not only would you kind of talk to them and you were drawing what was going on around you, but you're very free with and very generous with your notebooks and people could come and have a look at them. And so there's clearly an engagement. And I, and, and you know that the impact that can have on a young reader, a young illustrator can be profound. So you are you missing that engagement? Are you missing that um you know, sort of the, the, that that opportunity both for you as a as a an illustrator and as a writer to meet readers, but also what readers and children get from that. I'm not sure, actually, Shane. I mean, you know, I um, I'm an illustrator, you know, for a reason. I, I I love the the solitude and the sort of you know, I am the perfect candidate for lockdown. Um, in fact, before lockdown became so desperately fashionable, I was pioneering it as a lifestyle. Um, I. Uh, <laughs> My favourite time of the uh, uh, of the day, I think, is it, it's a very particular time, and it's uh, Wednesday afternoons in autumn when maybe it, it's rainy and cold, and you have to turn the the lights on, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. You know, it, it's 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 that sort of gloomy thing, and uh, I love that time in my studio, bottom of my garden, 
turning the light on because it's gloomy outside and it's cozy and warm in my studio and I'm working where nobody knows I'm there. And I love that because I think, wow, you know, it, I'm in my own little world, um, completely locked down. And what's happened during this pandemic is now everyone's doing that. You know, everyone is in their own sort of spaces and it's become less special. And I think, oh, dear, you know, I'm not special anymore. I'm just another person <laughs> in his own place. And so, yes, in a way, I do miss you know, getting out. The thing that I, I used to think, oh, I've got to go off and talk to sort of kids in a school, you know, um, I doubt really, I would love to do that now. I would really love to get out and actually see some people. It would be wonderful. <laughs> Uh, so uh, yes i do miss it um what i do enjoy, I've, I've got to say shane and this is sort of you know again about this this rather wonderful sort of podcast is 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 the sense of therapy of of, of doing podcasts like this and, and being able to chat about things in this way there's a wonderful sort of um permission and and and, and uh, sort of uh, relaxed quality i think to talking in this way you simply don't get in front of a, a large audience mm. And also I get to, uh, certainly in my case, I get to uh, have a peek into writers and illustrators rooms. So you get that extra sense of where they're actually working and what they're doing. You can, you can see my palatial surroundings, yeah. <laughs> my study. So it's inside and, and, and behind me, there's, there's a, uh, a sort of shelf and on the shelf is, um, are all these numerous awards that you alluded to. <laughs> And, and they're there for only so that I can go there and, and, and open up various uh, medals and gently stroke them, you know, when Good. they want to see me, you know, sort of like that little affirming thing. Then I put them back very carefully. Or th you could throw throw them at the foxes as they're kind of aiming for Phil the pheasant. It'd be... Oh, my God, I hadn't thought about that. Yes, brain one with an OBE. That, that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, but on children's books, because I realise we've talked about so much and unfortunately we're kind of... We're getting through the time, but I do want to ask you, so your current, um, uh, the book that's in paperback this month is Guardians of Magic. Tell us a little bit about that and what it is that when you're writing a children's book, what is it that you're looking for when you sit down to write one? What, how does an idea form itself? Shane, I, I, will, I will paint you a picture. Um, I, I work in, in my, as I say, in my studio at the bottom of my garden. Um, imagine, you know, um, uh, an impressive sort of linen shirt, possibly um, with with the capacious sleeves and a ruff at the the uh, the neck. Um, I'm in my studio um, dipping my quill pen and um, writing and making notes and having these brilliant ideas. It's late at night; the candelabra are flickering. You know, it's it's a, and I, I'm basically having great great ideas, huge inspired brilliant ideas you know things that will really really rock the world and i'll you know draw and, and sketch them out and and then you know i'll go to bed you know because it's 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 ridiculously late um and next morning i'll have this thing and it happens to many of us i'm sure that i'll get back into the studio and in the cold light of day i'll look at these great ideas and i'll think oh my goodness what was i thinking of you know, oh, that's a terrible idea it's awful and i've got into the habit of not throwing these things away not destroying them but uh, i have a plan chest in, in in my studio lots of these shallow drawers where you can put sort of pieces of paper and keep artwork and the very bottom uh, drawer of this 12 drawer plan chest is um, what i call the naughty drawer 
And I open that and I put these ideas into the naughty drawer and just close them and just let them marinate in the darkness like mushrooms, you know, just to see what happens. And once in a while, when I'm thinking of a new project, I'll sometimes go and open that drawer and have a look inside and see if anything has sort of changed, you know, whether it's sort of... And um, often it hasn't, you know, three-breasted mermaids riding, you know, robotic dinosaurs. The time hasn't come yet. But I did go to the Naughty Draw and open it and found this rather sort of complicated map I had drawn. Um, I had no real idea about it. It was just a, an exercise in having fun drawing mountains and and woods and giving them names, you know, and so there's a great wood and there's a, there's a, an area called the Tumble Downs because I just wanted to draw the land crumbling away into big boulders. Uh, and there are some sort of... You know, elaborately named and turreted cities, you know, on, on rivers with bridges and just, just creating, you know, a thing. And I looked at this and thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And I put it in the naughty drawer and it went, you know, into the dark for, for about five years, I think. And uh, and then I was wondering what to do next after the Ottoline and the Goth Girl books. There are four of each of those titles. And I didn't want to carry on doing endless books uh, uh with with the same characters i wanted something new and i opened the naughty draw there was this uh, this map of a place called thrin you know a mythical mystical place and that was my starting point i thought okay the time has come i will write something set in this world and i wanted to draw some flying horses i just liked the sort of scope and the feel of that and very early on i realized that that was a mistake because you can't really say the plural of pegasus <laughs> you know, this doesn't work. So I thought, right, okay, cloud horse. I'll call them cloud horses. This is where they're going to live, and and that became a sort of the start. And and for me, often that's how I work. I'm an illustrator in search of stories. So when I start writing, it's simply so that I can give myself opportunities to do illustrations. So this is a shameful sort of exercise and. Mm-hmm giving myself things to draw that I want to draw. Tin men and giants and flying horses and in extraordinary cakes, you know, it's all in there. Um, and uh, it's a very enjoyable process, but it's one of accretion. I start with one thing, the map, and then bit by bit I add things. Um, and because I add things, they change other things. And so before long, you know, one is telling this winding and twisting story, um, thinking, why on earth did I think a giant gingerbread man was a good idea? You know, but uh, but you get through that, and that's part of the, the fun. The inconvenience of storytelling is often a great spur, isn't it? And I, I, like, I like the way that in the, like the likes of the Ottoline books where you say um, – if you want to know more about this character, go forward to page whatever. You, there's oh, a yeah. playfulness that you have with the with the perhaps that you can have with those illustrations, with those drawings. That obviously, as a young reader, especially, is is fantastic to be able to kind of take these byways within a book to find the details in a drawing. Well, for me, it, it's all about structure, and I, I think for you know that gets me out of problems. You know, if 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 I say right, every chapter is going to be five pages, you know, manuscript pages, that's what it'll be. And that gives me my my structure. And when I get to the middle of the story, it's the middle of the story. So, you know, that's it. When I get towards the end, it's the end of the story. So I've got to find a way through that. So so it does, structure is everything for me. And and uh, the great Kurt Vonnegut um, used to do, wrote a wonderful novel called Galapagos. And in it, you know, there were characters, and he told you very early on that uh, if a certain symbol appeared next to a character's um name that character would something would happen 
catastrophically to to that character in five pages. And so you started to read this with a sense of, you know, anticipation and sometimes dread. You think, oh no, you know, the asterisk has appeared. That character, something terrible is going to happen to that character. And it changed the way you handled the book in a way. And I think uh, I, I really enjoy those sort of interventions, the way that um, a double page can can be full of a picture or you can turn the page and there's a little annotation next to an illustration it tells you something you didn't know as you read the story so um yeah i mean it's my way of getting through it and when i get stuck um i, I write everything by hand um and so my editor has that look when i come in with this sheath of sort of paper and hand it to them. I think, oh, I've got to type this up now. Um, but when I get stuck, I do little drawings. So my manuscripts are full of, of annotated drawings for characters or the way a sort of chair might look or, or whatever. Um, so they're big sort of you know patchwork things. Um, but again, I think that's about how I think words and pictures fit together you know, in very intricate and rather uh, enjoyable ways when one's telling a story. Oh, well, look, there's so much we could have talked about today. I wish we could have talked about so, uh, so many things. Actually, when you're talking even about the way that you can, uh, uh, that, that process of playing with things, I, you are, am I right, illustrating a, or a new illustrated version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a... Uh, oh, that, that I did during lockdown. That, that was a tremendous fun. That's another one that just suddenly happened. And, and my goodness, I love doing that. that, uh, that yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a book that... that changed the course of my life i think i can say that definitively um and uh so i, I would imagine that that must be tremendous fun can we do this again uh maybe next year and just talk about hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that we, would, I would that. it would be good I, I will talk about it all day it's the uh it's the only uh, well i think the sign of a great book or a favorite book is one you can pick it up and it f- it feels like it's the first time you've ever read that sentence oh. and Every yeah. single sentence, certainly the first two books um, mm. in a series are, are like that. I can just it's it's a remarkable rich. And what I love about it, Chris, is that I still meet occasionally, not as many as you would love to, but you still I still meet 11 and 12 year olds who have read it a very, very uh, occasionally you go into a school and you and, and somebody would say, I've read that book. And they, despite the fact that it's jokes about digital watches and council bylaws and bureaucracy and all these things that were kind of very 70s, 80s concerns, they absolutely love those books still. They, they, yeah. they ring around. That's, um, so I'm, I'm hugely looking forward to seeing that edition. When is that and out? You, you, that's out next year um, because it's in fact the, um, the, the 42nd anniversary. It's oh, very important. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. So, so it's very well timed, um, but but I love that sense when when um, uh, readers come to something for the first time and 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 you know something that we have loved in in our you know, we pass it on don't we to to our kids and and you know new readers and and that's a very particular joy um, and today actually Shane is a very special day for me because it's the publication day of uh, my version of Alice's oh. Adventures. Land. Um, and again, that was, uh, you know, a book that I've loved ever since I was sort of small. I, I loved the illustrations before I could even read. It was a book I would go to just to look at these amazing illustrations by John Tenniel. And um, it was a very frightening prospect for me in some ways to be uh, invited to sort of, you know, do my own versions of, of these much loved illustrations. And all I could do is sort of put Tenniel out of my mind and try and imagine 
Lewis Carroll delivering his manuscript to me in the way that Neil Gaiman might, and just trying to illustrate it in as a direct a way possible without looking at my shoulder. And that, and that was a sort of strange feeling. And the one character I simply couldn't approach in a way was um, the Hatter, the Mad Hatter, because uh, I love Tenniel's drawing mm-hmm. of the Mad Hatter. And I couldn't imagine any way to draw it. And that wouldn't be a pale imitation of, of that, you know, it would be tenure, but not as good, you know, which which I think probably sums me up. But um, <laughs> so that was a real. And, and for me, the the uh, the breakthrough, in a sense, was when I thought, right, I'm just going to draw the hatter in the least expected way. And so my hatter is a rather sort of attractive uh, woman. Uh, in a in a tall sort of top hat, admittedly, but but she has sort of long sort of golden hair and and you know uh, is no less mad for that. But but you know introduces an interesting cross dressing sort of quality to to the book that I think sort of suits Lewis Carroll's uh, universe. Um, and I think that gave me the courage then to go forward. I thought right, okay, you know my hat is a female and my Alice is going to be the, I based on, on the photographs of Alice Little that, that Lewis Carroll took, which are beautiful and rather enchanting sort of, um, sort of photographs of a little girl with a rather modern sort of bobbed hairstyle. And interestingly, her sisters have ringlets and look very Victorian. And Alice Little doesn't look like her, her sister. She looks like a real character. And you understand, actually, how Lewis Carroll, was, you know, sort of um, Charles Dodson uh, was drawn to sort of, you know, this this very particular little girl's character and, and, and you know, told these stories with, with Alice at the heart of it. And I thought that was an intriguing thing. So, so my Alice is based on Alice Little. So it's a dark-haired Alice. So there'll be a lot of sort of fanatical Alice in Wonderland fans who will be very upset with me. Uh, for transgressing on those two two sort of uh, issues. Well, uh, let them have at it, and you enjoy uh, every moment of it because it's it's a fantastic thing to um, to take something so special as a as a child and to be able to um, uh, add something to it as as an adult. And what a wonderful career so far! And um, I, I, you know, I, I like so many. I'm just I'm looking forward to seeing. All the work you have next, I'm looking forward to walking into more bookshops and bookshop toilets in which I see new, uh, you know, work scribbled on. I know there's so much that for anybody who doesn't know, um, Instagram, you're fantastic on Instagram. And if people uh, want to see more of your work and to hear some more of the poetry as well, they should go uh, to your Instagram uh, you're, you're very kind, Jane. My, my my daughter did actually say to me, Dan, I think you've got an Instagram problem, she said, <laughs> you know, really. And I looked and I think she's right. I think there might be about 9,000 posts. So I might have slightly overdone it. It might be a problem for you, not a problem for us, I could tell okay. you. We're enjoying it. So, um, Chris, it's been fantastic talking to you. As I said, we could have talked about so many more things, but uh, it's it's been really wonderful talking to you today. And congratulations on the publication of every book. Uh, this month um, and uh, best of luck with everything in the future and take care of yourself. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's the end of this particular chapter of Tall Tales. Again, I want to thank Chris Friedel uh, for being our guest today. In our next chapter, Mangan Magan will speak to Larry Nano, Gonya Niglin on books, reading and other matters. But thanks for listening today and thanks to all our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council. Stay safe, take care, thank you. Mm